It is task shifting. We all think it's multitasking, but you know, if you're working on a brief or studying for an exam or, you know, writing, you know, doing some research at your law firm and you constantly check your email or get a ping on your phone, um, that draws your attention away from the work that you were in. So you're not doing those two things at the same time. You're breaking your attention, shifting to something Mm -hmm. else. And then when you try to go back to the task that required your deep focus, you've lost time and you have to spend some mental energy getting back to that point where you were deeply engaged. Welcome back to the Thriving Lawyers Podcast. In this week's episode, join Michael Kahn for an enlightening and hopeful interview with Shalini George, a professor of legal writing at Suffolk University Law School. Welcome back to the Thriving Lawyers Podcast. This is Michael Kahn, one half of real-time creative learning experiences. My partner is Chris Osborne. He is a practicing lawyer. I am a former lawyer and uh, currently a licensed professional counselor and uh, I do a couple days a week of counseling for the Lawyer Assistance Program in Vancouver, BC, where I am currently situated. We have a, a wonderful guest today, Shalini George. She is a professor at Suffolk University, a law professor, professor of legal writing. And in fact, I found out about Shalini when um, I'm a podcast junkie. I heard her on a podcast. <laughs> and I, after that, bought her book. Shalini, I, don't know if it, I think I did tell you I bought your book. That's good to and, know. And it's always good to know that somebody's listening to those podcasts. <laughs> right? I know. I know. Well, I, it, was, it was a great interview. Got me interested enough to, to buy your book. And I've been great. reading your book and haven't read the whole thing yet, but it's really helpful. But let me, let me just give a quick a two-sentence biography about Shalini, and then I'll let her add on to that. She is uh, a legal writing uh, professor at uh, Suffolk University, and her scholarship focuses in the areas of lawyer well-being, mindfulness, and the cognitive science of learning. She's the author of, this is a book that I'm reading right now, The Law Student's Guide to Doing Well and Being Well. And even though it says law students, the information in there is applicable to lawyers, not just uh, those who are in law school. So that is why I bought the book. I knew it was going to be applicable to my work with lawyers. And she's also the co-author of Mindful Lawyering, The Key to Creative Problem Solving, and law review articles on distraction and the cognitive science of learning and why law students need mindfulness training. And finally, and lastly, this is important, she also was recently appointed to the Institute for Well-Being in Law's Research and Scholarship Committee. Uh, I've done some work with the um, Institute for Well-Being in Law, and they are really doing some some excellent work around the uh, area of well-being for lawyers and thriving for lawyers. So, Shalini, how did I do with that? Do you want to add uh, some things to your bio? Well, that was great, Michael. And let me just first of all, thank you for having me here today to talk about a topic that I know we both care um, very deeply about. Um, And it's always great to have a place to to talk through some of these issues. Uh, You did a great job with my bio. Uh, I'll add just a couple of things. I was recently um, named to the executive committee 
of the double ALS balance and well-being and legal education section. So that's law professors, you know, a section of law professors, all of whom are interested in in looking for balance and well-being um, in legal education. And I'm doing a lot of work at Suffolk on these issues too, which I'm sure we're going to talk about. Um, And just as an aside, I think the book, my book could be titled Anyone's Guide to Doing mm-hmm. Well and Being Well. Um, <laughs> That's true. And not just lawyers or law Not students. just lawyers. It could be, uh, right. we, there, was, there was a joke in my family as I was writing it <laughs> that, you know, there were different editions that were going to come out. I have two boys in college and I, I thought I could do the, you know, college student's guide to doing mm-hmm. well and being well. Um, but I do have an academic book publisher and they wanted to make sure that, that, that the audience Mm. knew, um, that I was a law professor, but anyway, thank you for that great introduction. And I, and I really look forward to talking, um, more today about the the topic of thriving. Yeah. Thank you. And, and just for our listeners and actually for me too, AALS, what does that stand for? That is the American Association of Law Schools. And that is an organization of uh, thousands of law professors across the country, and literally thousands. I wish I knew off the top of my head how many, but it is the primary Mm. um, way that law professors around the country organize. And we have a yearly conference in January, but it's divided. The membership is divided into sections based on topics. So, for example, Mm -hmm. there's a legal writing and reasoning section. There's a teaching methods section, a contract law, animal law, you name it. Um, But one of the newer sections is the section called Balance and Well-Being in Legal Education. So that is a place where I I find like-minded professors, uh, all of whom are really working on um, ways that we can bring elements of well-being um, and balance into, into the law school so that we hopefully set students up for, you know, better chance of of thriving and maintaining their uh, legal careers. Yeah, I mean, you're starting in law school would be ideal, wouldn't it? Because um, to, to some of the folks that I see in my counseling, in my lawyer assistance counseling, are, are folks who have bad habits to break. Right. And starting in law school with good habits would be uh, would be helpful, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, when I, whenever I give a talk about my book or in this, I am teaching a class at Suffolk that I'd love to talk about a little bit too, but, mm-hmm. you know, I take the um, lawyer well-being um, graphic, you know, the, the, the dimensions yeah. of lawyer well-being, and I, I try to have a conversation with students about the fact that for a long time, nobody talked about any of the dimensions other than how many hours do you work? Um, and I tell them, I know none of you have come to law school hoping to be burnt out and unhappy, you know, with mental health issues one day, nobody, nobody strives for that. And yet that's what's happening to a lot of us. So just, even if I can't, even we, we can't necessarily create healthy habits, but even a discussion about why we Mm -hmm. should have healthy habits is a step, um, I think in the right direction. I agree. And the, the graphic that you're mentioning was from the, uh, well-being task force report right and for those of you who who haven't seen it 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 defines lawyer well-being as a quote continuous process in which lawyers strive for thriving in each dimension of their lives and it lists six different dimensions emotional physical social spiritual intellectual and occupational and uh, shalini as i as as we uh, 
discussed in email, I guess yesterday, the um, Oregon Attorney Assistance Program, um, as, as far as I know, um, they, I think they're the first ones who did that, adding uh, cultural well-being uh-huh. to, um, to the list of dimensions, what I think was a, was a good add. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Um, and so I, it's, it's a really helpful idea and graphic that there are these various dimensions because it's, it's an, a recognition that we're not automatons who go to work and bill, you know, 12 or 14 hours and have nothing else that we need to think about. You know, it, it is giving, I think, permission for law students and lawyers to understand that there are other aspects of our beings that if we attend to, we can actually perform, I would argue, perform better um, and more productively. And that that's why we should be thinking about um, nurturing and really understanding the other dimensions as well. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's just talk, we can come back to some of this, but um, Shalini, why don't you share your journey? Uh, it, to as being a becoming a lawyer, um, and then eventually becoming a law professor, and uh, and then I might might interrupt, might interrupt at times as you're as you're sharing this if I have a a, a specific question. Sure. Um, so you know I could go on and on, but I'm going to try and give you just the highlights. Um, as I was growing up. I, so Michael and I talked about this before we started our recording today. Um, I am the children of immigrants. My parents came here from India. Um, and so, and they came, my, you know, my father came to get his master's in engineering at a time when the United States was very eagerly welcoming um, doctors and engineers from Asia. And as I was growing up, I was generally given two options. I could choose to be a doctor or I could choose to be an engineer. Um, unfortunately, I was not terribly good at math or science, so um, I shouldn't say that. I was all right at them. I just didn't, didn't love it. Um, I found myself very interested in the law, and so when I made the suggestion that maybe law school would be an option, you know, my parents, I think, were, were very excited to see me excited about it. So I, I went to law school straight from undergrad, which I don't really recommend to people, but that's what I did. Um, and I, you know, my interest in law was always in litigation. And so that's what I pursued um, from the very beginning in law school, interning and clerking um, for the Superior Court in Massachusetts. And then I worked for a plaintiff, a small plaintiff's employment litigation firm. Um, actually, I clerked for the Superior Court for a year. I did some plaintiff's work for about two years. And then I worked at an insurance defense firm for seven years. So really heavily in litigation um, discovery, depositions, summary judgment motions, and trials. So in, in total, I, I worked for about uh, 10 or 11 years. I had an aha moment, though, at one point where um, my father passed away when I was on maternity leave with my second child. And I had a little bit of time to kind of stop and take a breath and, and think about whether I was actually doing things that I enjoyed doing um, that made me happy. Um, I had had an enlightening conversation with my father before he passed away, in which he reminded me that I had always really liked teaching. And mm-hmm. so I started thinking about kind of combining my interest in law with teaching and it took me about a year, a year and a half, but I, I found this position at Suffolk and uh, teaching legal writing because I thought that's a 
something I was qualified to do. And I have been there ever since. And uh, Shalini, can you hear me right now? I can. Okay, good. I was having just a momentary issue with my microphone. And I oh, okay, I hear you fine. Make sure that okay, great. So, um, so your dad, if if sorry, I was a touch distracted with the microphone mm. for a second. But your dad passed. Um, did you say it was twenty years ago? Yeah. Uh, yes. Um, my I had just um, had my younger son, who's going to be twenty in July. So it was about mm-hmm. it's coming up on twenty years in in September. Mm. Um, he had not been well for a few years, so it was not a surprise at the time, but it was difficult. I had a two-year-old and yeah. an infant um, when he passed. So um, I, you know, my firm was asking me all the time, when was I coming back to work? Uh, mm-hmm. I, was, I was told by another female partner that you know, she only took six weeks off for maternity leave, and she wasn't telling me that I should only take six weeks mm. off, but when did right. I think I would be coming back to work? Right. Um, so that really that really helped me, I think, um, realize that I was not dying to get back to work and that there were some things mm-hmm. that I had not been enjoying tremendously. And, you know, it was, it was an opportunity for me to take a little bit of a course correction. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting that you, you said that certainly, um, and we talked a little bit before the interview today, that... Um, Loss is something that, that, that we all experience, and it can have an effect. It can affect us all differently. And I do a lot of work with, with grief and loss in my work now as a counselor for LAP and also when I was in private practice. But it sounds like it, it certainly understandably uh, had an impact on you and, and on your path. It, it absolutely did. And, you know, it's something really I, I still think about sometimes when I'm working with young law students. Um, you know, there it, there are some difficult things that happen when you work in the world of billable hours. And so it was yeah. it was hard for me to manage, um, you know, t- two young children, my father not being well, um, you know, maternity leave that coincides with bereavement leave, which means I didn't really get one or the other fully. <laughs> And, um, it's like, but you still have to bill. So, you know, those are some of the hard, cold, hard facts, I think for, for a lot of lawyers. And Mm -hmm. I think, you know, hopefully culturally the way that, that law is practiced needs to change a little bit because that, that sort of framework does not allow for those other dimensions of well-being that we were talking about just a few minutes ago. Yeah. And, and you also gave an example of the culture of some law firms, a lot of law firms, unfortunately, was the the um, not not so subtle message that you're wanted back in work, wanted back at work, right? Quick, quickly, right? And to, to not here in Canada, gosh, I think I think each parent can have six months leave after they have a child. We we have friends who are a couple uh, a couple here just had a baby, and the mom took six months off. And then she went back to work, and the dad now is taking six months off. Well, I think we're the the United States is one of the one of the countries in the world with the worst, um, yeah. you know, parental leave policies. Um, we could obviously talk a whole hour about that, <laughs> um, but it yeah. it poses challenges, um, obviously, for young yeah. attorneys and particularly for young female attorneys because the, the you know the bulk the bulk of things still fall on them, um, no matter mm-hmm. how much how much things change. Right, and we did um, 
touch on that in our uh, discussions before this. The the um, the practicing law, going to law school, being being a law student, that's all stressful, and uh-huh. it's even more stressful for law students, for lawyers who are who are in marginalized groups, yes. people of color, women. Um, as an example, is, uh, sexual orientation, although it's not as obvious, a marginalization, right. um, certainly that can impact um, people's experiences in law school and law firms and ultimately well-being. Absolutely. Did you want to speak to that at all? Yeah, sure. I mean, I don't know that there's anything more critical, actually, mm-hmm. to um, somebody being able to fulfill their full potential than being your full self um, in any particular role. So when I went to law school, you know, and I'll give away my age here, um, in the early 90s, there were not a lot of Indian lawyers. There were certainly not a lot of Indian law students. Um, I had people say things to me in interviews like, oh, you know, you seem really great, but I just wonder what what, how people will react if we bring somebody like you mm-hmm. in for a second interview. And I never knew if that was because I was a woman, because I was um, a person of color, like what really was the issue? Mm-hmm. Um, or both. I had, yeah, or both. Um, I had um, people say, <laughs> I'll never forget somebody who asked me, you know, how'd you get to be a lawyer? Aren't your people usually doctors and engineers? Mm. And now we have maybe an understanding that when you say something like your people, you're really yeah. saying, you know, you're not one of our people. That's right. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm glad to know that, that things are changing um, and that we're having these conversations and that there is a recognition. Certainly the, the ABA is, is explicitly recognizing the importance of um, information, training, education on cross-cultural competency and on racism. So these are all positive steps. Um, they don't happen overnight, and I don't know that anybody has the the magical answer as to, you know, you can't wave a wand and make everybody culturally competent. Right. But again, I think just having the conversations and this recognition that it is something for us to talk about um, is a is a really positive first step. Agreed. Um, self self awareness, yes, uh, certainly certainly helps, and that's where. To me, and we're we're going off in lots of different directions here, but that's okay. Um, you talk about mindfulness in your in your book, and and what an important tool and resource that is, and and way of life, really. And mm-hmm. mindfulness is one of the best tools to become more aware of uh, how you are with people in general, but particularly people who are different than you, right? And how you your behaviors, your thoughts your reactions to right. folks who are different than you, right? Right. I mean, you know, I think the, the, the power of mindfulness, at least the way that I practice and, and explain it to my students, is in slowing down and taking a moment to be intentional and conscious, you know, very consci- consciously make choices about um, our language or how we react to people or situations. And, you know... There can be sometimes some um, 
hesitation that, you know, mindfulness is some sort of mystical or religious or, you know, um, something that doesn't belong in law school. But I would argue the exact opposite, that as lawyers um, who are supposed to be rational, logical thinkers, that it probably makes sense for us to give our brains a chance to kind of slow down and assess the situation, choose our, our words carefully, understand maybe the background of a situation that we are dealing with so that we can better address um, these sorts of issues um, rather than leaving them unsaid. I think people tend to think if you don't talk about race or you don't talk about culture or you don't talk about pronouns, that it just means um, that everybody's fine. And I think it's, that's not true. So we used to, I used to hear people say things like, well, I don't see race or, you know, I think of you as just being like everybody else, but nobody's just like everybody else. And so when we say that we're ignoring, um, a whole part of, of who we are. Um, that's why I really not seeing, Oh, go ahead. Finish. Finish No, I was just going to say, that's why I think the, the inclusion of the cultural well-being as a Mm -hmm. dimension is an explicit recognition that there is that this part of us, it, be it, um, it's not always about um, your your color necessarily, but you know your culture, what you eat, um, what you enjoy listening to, That's where right. you spend your time, um, all of that is wrapped into um, who we are as people. Yeah, and and back to the idea of of being colorblind or genderblind. Right. That's that means if you first of all, it's impossible. Right. It's nonsense. Um, but, yeah, but second of all, if you do strive for that, then you also don't, you're not paying attention to the racism or the sexism uh, that, that's going on. If you're not paying attention to race or gender, then you're also being, um, um, uh, you're, you're, you're blind to some of the, some of the racism and, and sexism that's going right. on and other isms. Right. Right, right. You're pretending mm-hmm. that they don't exist. And not mm-hmm. acknowledging them does not mean they don't exist. Right. So right. let's go, let's talk just a little bit more about law school. Sure. Even though, even though it gives me the shivers to <laughs> <laughs> think about, no, truly, I'm joking. I actually enjoyed law school. I know that's maybe kind of crazy for some folks to, uh, or to think I'm, I'm, uh, not thinking clearly to say that, but I did enjoy law school. I enjoyed the, uh, I enjoyed the intellectual stimulation and I actually had a blast. I met some mm-hmm. wonderful people. Um, it was certainly hard, especially the first year mm-hmm. and um, not sure I'd want to do it again. Right. But, but I did enjoy it. In fact, I enjoyed law school more than practicing law, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but certainly you've been you've been a professor now for I think you said eighteen years is that right yeah yes uh, I don't know if you said it in our interview right now but I know you told me earlier around um, that much yeah yeah so what are you noticing are, are you noticing any difference in the law students that are coming in and how first and how they're coming in and how they're dealing with stress how they're managing stress. Um, and is there anything that the law school, well, Suffolk in uh, Suffolk in particular, but in general, law schools mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. doing differently in your teaching approach? I know that's a big question. I ask you a lot of stuff there, so yeah, feel free to a, start yeah, wherever you want. There's a few different things that I that I'd like to talk about. Um, sure. 
there. So I first started um, researching the the process of learning and distraction. Like that's where, so about 10, 11 years ago, I had been teaching for six or seven years at that point. And I think that was around the advent of the iPhone. And, Mm. you know, we, we really changed the way that we, that we take in and process information. And, I started doing a little bit of research because I, I was I was constantly complaining about my students. Like they, I felt they were distracted. I thought they were, you know, on their laptops, not doing what they were supposed to do in class. I felt like maybe, you know, they were very interested, more interested in their phones than they were in their work at times. But I felt a little bit like a curmudgeonly old old law professor who just was, you know, making these statements. But I didn't really know if there was legitimately something for me to be concerned about. So uh, the one of the law review articles that you mentioned earlier is called Teaching the mm-hmm. Smartphone Generation. And that law review article was my chance, like the research for that was my chance to, to understand a little bit about the brain, how we take in information, how we process information, and what effect does distraction and multitasking have on those abilities. And it's not good. I think we all know multitasking is not good. Um, I can right. drink a cup of coffee while I talk to you because drinking the cup of coffee doesn't require my attention, but I certainly can't do something else that requires my attention um, well, while I'm trying you to You can't focus. do it well. Yeah, exactly. No, you can do you it. Can't do it well. a, lot, a lot of us try, but we're not going to perform our best when we do that. And so, no, I think I, you I, said, by the way, in in yeah. your, I listened to your pod, one of your podcasts earlier. You taught, you called it task shifting. Right? Yeah, it not is multitasking. Task, yeah, it is task shifting. We all think it's multitasking, but you know, if you're working mm-hmm. on a brief or studying for an exam or you know, writing, you know, doing some research at your law firm, and you constantly check your email or get a ping on your phone, um, that draws your attention away from the work that you were in. So you're not doing those two things at the same time. You're breaking your attention, shifting to something Mm -hmm. else. And then when you try to go back to the task that required your deep focus, you've lost time and you have to spend some mental energy getting back to that point where you were deeply engaged and your brain was making these connections that you wanted it to make and you were kind of moving the information along. So yeah, we do a lot of task switching. Um, I thought students were doing a lot of it. And so I, I wanted to work on that law review article to educate myself about what was happening and also to, to get some ideas about how what we could do to change that. And that's where the art law review article on mindfulness came from. Um, if I, I had identified a problem of distraction, I then, you know, wanted to think about what the solution was and the the antidote to distraction is is mindfulness. So if we're constantly mm-hmm. And multitasking, you know, I had this this strange idea. What happens if we monotask? You know, like what happens if you actually <laughs> just do one thing at a time? And we're not used to it, and our brains don't want to do that. Um, our brains crave novelty, and we feed our brains novelty. So it takes. Well, practice. it's so easy now, of course. Oh yeah, um, everything at the I'm, at the tip of your fingers, right? And I know you in your book you talked about. Uh, and I, I, I told you that one of the issues that comes up with um, a lot of my clients is procrastination. Yes. And and one of the things you recommend for folks who are either procrastinating or or, or having trouble getting their work done easily distracted is to put their phone in another room. Yes. Like literally, remove it from their space. Yes. I think that's a good suggestion. 
it seems so simple and mm-hmm. yet it's very powerful. So research does show that when you have your phone and this is something, so you asked, I'll just wrap this back into your last question yeah, too. Please. You asked about how I've changed things or, or what have I incorporated into teaching? And these are things I try to educate my students about that um, just having a phone near you, whether you're looking at it or not, your attention is going to your phone. So students think if it's in their bag or it's turned off or it's face down, they're like, but I'm not looking at my phone. But <laughs> but you keep thinking, right? Oh, I'm not going to yeah. look at my phone. And so that's the second that you're not engaged, um, as I tell them, like with me, who knows what you're going to, what, what amazing and, and, um, you know, fascinating thing I'm about to tell you That's in class right. and you're going to miss it because you're That's thinking, right. you know, did my mom text me? So, <laughs> well, um, well, listen, I, I had that exact thing happen to me when I was questioning my microphone. Is it working? Right. Uh, I missed what you said. Right. When you were talking, and you were talking about the very personal thing about your dad. So definitely right. not ideal. Right. Uh, not ideal right. to miss anything that you said, but certainly not that portion of it so that was a well, great example of me being a, not now I wasn't but you, you know, didn't do it intentionally, intentionally. yeah I exactly. but it was a good example though of, <laughs> of being distracted right well yes the effective distraction yes. for sure and mm-hmm. so um th- these are ways in which I have I think started to change my teaching in my legal writing class for sure and I, I actually create um classes where students have to bring something in to work on and there's no technology no phones no laptops nothing oh wow and i walk them through a process that i write about in the book of creating the proper physical and mental space in order to be productive so they it's very strange mm-hmm. for them but they have to bring in a hard copy of something um, which is the first like shock. The, um, right. So they have to bring in a hard copy and they're allowed to have that piece of paper and a writing utensil on their desk. And I have them put everything else away. I love so it. There's literally nothing else that they can think about. Wow. And then I do um, a few minutes of guided meditative breathing with them so that we kind of calm mm-hmm. ourselves. We identify. How do, they, how do they react to that when the new students, when you, you have know, them? Both, yeah. both things. Yeah. Michael, you'd be surprised. They love it. They beg me for more. They mm-hmm. want to know, like, mm-hmm. they, they want to do it more. Um, the first mm-hmm. few times I did it in class, maybe there are a couple of skeptics. But by the time, and usually we do 20 or 25 minutes of work. But the important, the most important part of that process is the debrief when it's over. And when I say, so, you know, what did you accomplish? They have accomplished like two hours, what they thought would take them two hours, they've done in 20 or 25 minutes. Because, well, that's the key, isn't it? That right, result really will, right, will, will right. encourage they, them to do that more. Yeah. Or they they will tell mm-hmm. me they see things that they hadn't seen. Like, like I, I read mm-hmm. this over before. I thought I had edited it. This, this is something mm-hmm. I do quite often before a memo is due. They think it's in really good shape, but then they find when they really are, are deeply focused, they find mistakes they hadn't seen, they find typos, they find a gap in their analysis. So that debrief is really valuable. And then we, I can explain to them why this process was so successful. And then the really, yeah. the really funny key is I say, you know, you can do this on your own. <laughs> you can really do this. Um, but yeah. they beg me for more. So hmm. I think that tells you something. So that's pretty cool. I'm sure you share that with your your uh, colleagues there about it. Have any of them implemented some of what you do? Yes, actually. So we have mm-hmm. um, something that we call a writing retreat, 
Um, we do it once a semester, um, and the the we get faculty support for it so that we can get some food and beverages and things like that. And we have students mm-hmm. come for a two or three hour block of time. And it's the exact same thing. You know, we, they have to bring whatever work they need to do, but we get them started. The first step, actually, I should, I should go back and say, I usually have them set a goal for themselves for the work session. So in these writing retreats and they bring in whatever it is they want to work on and we have them write down their goal for the day. And we, I just talk very briefly about how much more likely we are to accomplish something if we do it with a goal or intention in mind. We do that thing where we clear off physically things that are competing for our attention. I lead them through the meditative breathing. They work. We work for about 50 to 55 minutes and then they take a break and we talk mm-hmm. about that, the importance of that too, you know, you have to take a break. Um, your brain can't focus for some unlimited amount of time. Um, and we get the same feedback from these students. They want me to do it once a week. And I have to kind of say, you know, you can create these conditions, um, Mm-hmm. on your own as well. So that's one way in which the broader um, community at the law school is involved. Um, some of the other professors who I teach with do exactly my um, type of exercise in class. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Thriving Lawyers podcast. We love hearing from our loyal listeners, so please feel free to email us any questions, comments, suggested topics, or guest recommendations at the following address, feedback at thrivinglawyerspodcast.com. The Thriving Lawyers podcast is brought to you by Real-Time Creative Learning Experiences, a national provider of continuing legal education and professional development programs that leave participants engaged, encouraged, and equipped to pursue meaningful and sustainable change in their practices, their lives, and the organizations they work in. And by Osborne Conflict Resolution, your experienced guides through the uncharted terrain of business and family law disputes based out of Charlotte, North Carolina. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Thriving Lawyers Podcast. Thank you.